this isn't actually part of the talk, but just to say that uh, uh, you have a delightful teacher. He's a great guy. <laughs> and uh, so I really celebrate uh, James and uh, the Sangha that all of you have built together. So it's a lot of good has come out of this Sangha, and I bow to your practice in that way. As I mentioned uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Dancing with Life, which is a book that takes us through the teachings of the Four Noble Truths from the perspective that's uh, reflected in the Samyutta Nikaya. It's one of the oldest of all the Buddhist texts. And in that particular text, the Four Noble Truths are not presented as some philosophical statement, but rather as a series of insights that we are to experience through practice. So each of the Four Noble Truths has three insights. Uh, an insight that taking the first Noble Truth that there's suffering, the first is a kind of intellectual insight that, oh, that's true, that Suffering is this, this unease, this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliableness. All of these stress, all of these feelings are part of life. Not that there's only suffering in life, but that it's, it's inseparable from life. This dukkha, there is dukkha in life. And that's the, the, the first of the insights is to intellectually reflect. Is that true? Is that within my experience that that's the way life is? And, so forth. It's an intellectual insight. And then the second insight is to directly see for yourself through investigation, to understand how, how dukkha is affecting you in your life, the nature of this realm and how it affects your life. And that, that ability to do that has in it this quality of standing under, that one becomes a person who can stay present for the difficulty of life. It's very uh, powerful insight in itself. And then the third insight of the first noble truth is that there is uh, a knowing that you have now understood this. So your life starts to change simply because you don't have to turn, you don't have to avert when it's difficult. Difficult because of it's difficult, it's in some way a loss or pain or emotional or physical difficult, or because that the pleasant doesn't stay, that which we value doesn't stay around. There's a whole teaching there. I'm very specific about the three kinds of dukkha and all. And I, uh, I was inspired to do this book by um, my teacher, the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho. And it's been, um, uh, the book was uh, well received in our community. So there's been hundreds and hundreds of study groups, reading groups all around the country uh, that over these years that have uh, been pretty heavily involved in Dancing with Life. The reason I give this as a backdrop is uh, for a uh, long period of time I went around teaching from this book and then I also offered um, uh, this uh, uh, every other month or every three months a telephone seminar for people who were leading a group in this. So I had a lot of interaction around this and one of the things that kept coming up is, okay, this is very inspiring in terms of the dharma-dharma of it, but what about my daily life? And so 
um, uh, people would ask all these questions, and that motivated what we're going to be talking about tonight, which is emotional chaos to clarity. And which, uh, uh, in this book, I, I describe the first noble truth of dukkha as t- in terms of the chaos that comes in our minds because we haven't learned to stand under and we haven't learned how to let loose of the way that we contribute to creating the chaos in our lives. Because we do so much. The Buddha uh, refers to this in the second noble truth, which he says that suffering has a cause, and this cause is the mind's clinging, clinging to uh, the various sense things, clinging to what it wants to have, and clinging to what it doesn't want to have. And that this, this chaos that we experience is the chaos of that relationship to our conditions, our, our both external conditions that are chaotic in nature from uh, the uncertainty in our lives, uh, economically, physically, and so forth, and the internal chaos in our lives that comes from our own habits of mind, our own conditions, the difficulties that have happened to us, the traumas that have happened to us in the past, or our worries about the future, and our, uh, the way that we create chaos in our mind. And that's the emotional chaos that I'm pointing to in this book. And then the clarity, the emotional chaos to clarity, the clarity is not a clarity of getting rid of the chaos, but of becoming clear in how we choose to relate to it and empowering ourselves to have a kind of clarity that allows us to relate to the, to the chaos. Because the chaos doesn't go away. It didn't go away for the Buddha. People were always complaining about him. Uh, they were uh, t- terrible gossip about him. His distant cousin uh, tried to create a group of people to assassinate him. He, um, he was always being uh, vexed with all of these. The, the, the monks would get into these arguments, and so he started out with almost no rules, and he'd have to create more and more rules as these people couldn't get along. And... Uh, uh, Incidentally, uh, just before he died, he said, you know, you only have to adhere to the most important rules. But nobody asked him what were the most important ones. So to this day, the monastics have to live with all these rules. And, um, so he, he had to deal with chaos. And I, I really uh, like bringing that up because it's so easy for us to really have this hidden agenda. Well, if I really have a good practice, I won't have any chaos in my life. He had a bad back. He would say uh, sometimes in the evening, you know, Sariputta, you teach the Dharma. I need to rest. So chaos in his life too. But great clarity of mind in terms of how to deal with it. And so not disturbed by the disturbances, not perturbed by perturbances. That's great, great clarity. And in this book... I uh, 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 offer two basic tools that I think are uh, uh, sort of essential for dealing with chaos in our lives, for empowering us to have a new relationship with those things that disturb our minds. One is mindfulness, which you're all familiar with already, most of you at least. 
Mindfulness has become so ubiquitous in our society that even if this is your first time here, you would have heard about mindfulness most likely. So that's the first tool. And then the second tool is that of intention. Intention and mindfulness are part of the eightfold path that makes up the fourth noble truth. So that the, 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 the first noble truth is that there is this existential difficulty in life. No matter what you believe, the actual experience of life is a lot of difficulty. It's a priori to belief. And that, that makes the Buddha the first existentialist. And he also pointed to it to be noticed not so much as the storyline, but as the phenomena. The phenomena. So we have anger, we have fear, we have worry, we have excitement, we have joy. And we have a story about all of that. But it, the phenomena of it is what we're relating to from a Buddhist psychological point of view. Quite different, and I'll be saying a lot more about that on Saturday. And uh, but then the fourth noble truth was how to relate to this phenomena of the, of the mind, the phenomena of it, in a way that brings us to freedom, which is the third noble truth, the nibbana, the, the uh, awakening, where we are, we are no longer uh, trapped by the, the tendencies of our mind, so that greed, hatred, and delusion are expiated, the very seeds of them expiated in the full maturing of liberation, which is a long journey, and there's levels of liberation that occur, we're told. And so these two tools of mindfulness and intention I utilized throughout as in the book, and I, uh, you can flip through the book yourself to see in terms of everything from uh, how to make a decision to how to start your day, how to deal with personal defeat, how to live with the difficult, and on and on and on. But tonight I want to focus particularly on intention, but um, we'll talk a bit about both mindfulness and intention. And this role of uh, having a practice has um, a definite um, uh, choice about life. To quote uh, Jung, C.G. Jung, he said, as far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. And I feel as though this is what mindfulness and intention do together so beautifully. They create a light in the darkness of our reactive minds. You know, so much of the time we're caught by this or that. We're in the dark. We don't see another way. We don't even consider that there might be another way to relate to what's happening to us or happening in the world or some condition that's present right now. We don't, we don't notice that there's a possibility of some other way. And mindfulness and intention not only... Uh, alert us to what's true, but also suggest another way of relating to it, a way that has more empowerment, more freedom in it, as we'll see. And in addition, these two uh, uh, folds of the Eightfold Path, these two factors of the Eightfold Path, mindfulness, samasati, and uh, intentions, uh, samasamkapa, that these together... Uh, create a, a fruit 
that is a benefit, a blossom, that is very immediately felt. And that is, we rediscover some authentic part of ourselves that relates to meaning in our lives, where there's a sense of that I'm being true to something that is very satisfying, even under difficult circumstances even under times when there are no, quote, good choices. There is some way of being in relation to all of those choices that adds a sense of well-being to us. That is very noticeable uh, pretty right away. This isn't, some things in our practice take months, years, even decades to develop. But this, uh, this uh, shift uh, can happen in a, a very short period of time. I'm going to read you a number of poems tonight uh, uh, because of the, the, a lot of the Dharma uh, is best understood in the felt sense. So uh, in the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha uh, teaches, I was starting this in the first one tonight in the meditation around awareness of the body. The breath is considered part of the body. It's the felt sense of our experience. So knowing the body in the body is a felt sense. It's not the old coconut having a viewer opinion about the body. It's not this observer, this removed observer. Oh, yes, the body down there is having pain or the body is really feeling good right now. No, it's the uh, pain in the knee feels like this. Uh, uh, Joy in the body feels like this. It's immediate and it's the felt sense. It's Vipassana. Vipassana is the direct experience, the intuitive knowing of an insight. It's not a conceptual insight. It's a direct and intuitive knowing. And uh, so in our practice, that's what we're cultivating. And poetry uh, uh, can capture certain felt sense moments that uh, the, the discursive uh, language is can pop us too much up into the conceptual. So this is a poem called Phone Call. And it's uh, by Tony Hoagland, and it's from his book, What Narcissism Means to Me. (laughs) It's a wonderful book of poems. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. (laughs) That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. (laughs) What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people, one of them living deep inside of me, like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other, standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. 
I don't want to live without proportion, like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. You know, we all have those uh, aspects inside us. You know, there's a whole committee in there, right? whole committee inside. And we've picked up these people from parents, from our, our peers, from uh, the larger society, from the archetypical realm itself. And they, uh, they do blight our crops. They poison our herds. And we learn gradually to have choice in relation to them so that they become less and less able to create chaos for us. So that we more and more have a, a way of choosing other than just going with the reaction of these parts of us inside. And that is what uh, uh, Buddhist psychology and mindfulness practice and this cultivation of intention is so, in a way, uniquely uh, able to do is to help us deal with these considerations in various ways. And so as we, as we learn to do this, uh, we see that um, there is a possibility of moving away from the reactive mind, the reactive mind, that comes from the, uh, the truth that is the second foundation of the Buddha's mindfulness, which is Vedna, the, the, the fact that there is pleasant and unpleasant uh, tonality that comes with every experience. So anything you see, hear, smell, anything we taste, anything uh, that, uh, that we think, there is this little flavoring, this Vedna, of either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which is a whole other dharma talk, but neither pleasant nor unpleasant is. This Vedna, this little feeling, which can be quite strong, something can be extraordinarily unpleasant, or just slightly unpleasant. Or it can be slightly pleasant, or very pleasant. And our minds are conditioned by that. So conditioned that we, rather than having any choice as to what we think or feel, we just go with it. We just go with it. We, in some ways, become like a puppet on the end of two strings. If it's pleasant, we dance to it. We want it. And if we've got it, we want to keep it. And we want to get more of it. And we don't want anyone taking it away from us, including life itself taking it away, like losing a loved one. I lost a good friend this week on Tuesday of this week and got to feel all of that. And then if it's unpleasant, then we, we, uh, we don't want it, we want to avoid it. If it's already, we're enmeshed in it somehow, we want to get rid of that unpleasantness, and we certainly don't want any more of it. And so there we are dancing this way. It's a kind of dance, but a very limited dance with life. There's not much clarity in that. We're just in reactive mind. We're reacting to conditions of this moment, or to someone in this moment, or we're reacting according to our habits. So lots of room for chaos to arise in that way. But as we start to see 
that there is um, uh, uh, other way that there is other that there is an innate capacity in us that is not dependent on the conditions. There's innate capacity of being that is not dependent on conditions. Then we start to see that there's other ways to start to meet those conditions, to meet those people. And that is the freedom of moving from a reactive mind that reacts to pleasant and unpleasant in all three times so we can have a memory of something unpleasant in the past that is controlling us in this moment. Or we can have a worry about the future and it's controlling us in this moment. Just that puppet on the string. That's the reactive mind. Moving from that reactive mind to a responsive mind. A reactive mind, when something strong comes up, it defines us. It could be someone cutting us off on the highway. It could be someone at work frowning. We, they, they frown as we walk by, and we immediately make it about us. And what did I do to that person? They've never liked me. This is, what does that mean? That was my boss frowning at me. You know, whatever the papancha mind, this explosion of ideas and associations that we call it papancha in Buddhist psychology, that happens. That's all being defined by a condition, which may be a true condition or may be a completely imagined condition. Either way, we get defined by it. We could have had something untowards happen to us in the past, and we've carried it around with us as an identity all of these years, decades, and we're defined by it. When we move from that reactive mind to a responsive mind, same conditions, same everything, but it only characterizes us. So that very same untowards thing that happened to us or that thing we did in the past that we have such regret about, rather than defining us, simply is one of the many, many things that characterizes us. That's freedom. When we move from a reactive mind to uh, the clarity of a responsive mind, we move to choice, to having choice as to how we respond. And it is through mindfulness and through this, uh, this development of a conscious intention towards meeting all conditions, regardless of what they are, in the same manner that we develop this, this clarity. This is a poem by Mary Oliver. It's, it's uh, called Heavy. That time, I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. I went closer, and I did not die. Surely God had his hand in this, as well as friends. Still, I was bent, and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. Have you noticed? Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again out of my startled mouth? Have, have you 
how I linger to admire, admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep waves, a love to which there is no reply. It is how we carry, it's how we balance, it's how we embrace it. This is uh, what the Buddha teaches us, the way to stand under, to carry, how to relate to our experience. This life is challenging, this life is difficult, even in its happiest moments. It's difficult, it's challenging. It's also beautiful and exciting and wonderful and enchanting and totally mysterious. We don't mind that part. We don't mind that. So if there's, it's not, um, does not take any encouragement for people to embrace the mystery, the awe. But it does take some amount of encouragement to embrace uh, the chaos of the vulnerability, the chaos of the uncertainty. It takes amount of practice. It takes amount of training to all the uh, full facets of life to include our own death and the death of others and the sickness of others uh, that we, we all uh, participate in. Again, this week, I have two friends that are uh, dealing with very uh, serious illnesses and uh, one being a young woman with two young kids and um, uh, the chaos that comes in her life that she's just been having uh, this very week that I've been helping her attend to, um, is, it's, it's challenging in that way for us all. And so um, as, as we, we start to see that, that, that the truth of this is that the chaos doesn't go away because there's a little hidden uh, uh, agenda that we think we can avert and it'll go away. You know, we stick our head in the sand. We open the refrigerator door. We uh, click on the TV channel. We uh, have that extra two drinks. We, uh, we go through uh, the surfing on the web to, to avert, to not be with life as it is. It's a strategy of sort, and it may work for a while, but it doesn't, in the end, give us any empowerment, these ways that we you know, we hide out in. Nothing wrong with taking a break every once in a while, but to be dependent on hiding out is not a very successful strategy as far as I've been able to determine. And it's certainly the opposite of what the Buddha chose to do. He chose to be right in there, to go in it, to go through it by, by being in it, to know the experience within the experience, I repeat. And so then we, we see that... Um, that it is um, 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 being present itself is the reward. That being present itself, having a way that we intend to meet the moment is the reward in itself. That is the satisfaction rather than so much the satisfaction being about our goals. So uh, the untrained mind thinks that all that matters is the goals. And goals are useful. Goals tell us uh, how we want to spend our time, how to allocate our resources. They add spice to life. Oh, am I going to make it? I'm not going to make it. 
this, this directionality, this, this context are, are, comes from our goals. And so we need goals, and uh, I encourage people to have goals. But goals are always future-based. A lot of times they don't work out. So we can't be present at our goal because our goal's not here. It wouldn't be a goal if it was here right now. So it's somewhere out there. So our aliveness is in this moment, this moment, and this moment, not in that future moment. And that's a challenge with goals. And also, many times with our goals, we think we want something, but when we get it, maybe we didn't want it so much. Or, and this is, a, um, I can remember being a, a young man in the world and uh, discovering that I could make my way in the world, which was a big surprise to me, that I could make my way in the world. It was not what anyone had ever told me until uh, uh, I was certainly through my, uh, my 18th year. This was not at all what the message was. But then it turned out I could actually make my way in the world. And uh, uh, my realizing at some point that, you know, this, getting, what, you, getting uh, what you want to accomplish at, it isn't in the end satisfactory. That it, there's something there, there's always something else than you want. That it never, there's no stopping it. That there is this kind of, I didn't even know the term of samsaric will, but I did know that there's something about this that doesn't work right. This isn't at all what I was thinking it would be. And that was a big insight and led me to my practice at a very early age in my 20s, seeing that, it, that this wasn't enough. And so we, we see that, there in a, uh, that goals can be uh, very useful but that there is a deeper way of meeting life, and that is from our values, from our values. And that is where intention comes in, this sama samkapa, the intention, moment to moment, who we choose to be, whatever we're meeting. So we have goals that are wholesome, we have goals that are unwholesome. We know how unwholesome goals work out. We've all chosen some of those, right? I don't see anyone in here so young that they would not have had an experience with having chosen a goal that turned out not to be a very wholesome goal. And you know, you know all the mess that comes from that. So we have wholesome goals also that are very worthwhile. But then we have skillful and unskillful means uh, as we, that we can employ. Unskillful means, even with a wholesome goal, um, leads to a lot of chaos. Whereas skillful means uh, create a kind of harmony as we're moving towards our goals. And intentions are our values that, that we have come to, uh, 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 to uh, create a kind of a continuity of those values through a few intentions of this moment. How do I intend to be in this moment? When I, when I am uh, on the phone with my difficult, difficult sibling, how do I intend to be right now? I may have a goal with that difficult sibling of being understood or not being blamed or, or whatever it may be. But how do I intend to be this moment? Here I am with uh, having to make a decision uh, regarding um, uh, someone or regarding my health or something. 
Uh, yes, I have a goal with that, but how do I intend to be when I'm interacting with the physician or this person I'm helping or making a, a decision about their life in some way? How do I intend to be right this moment? And that's intention. So to give you an analogy, you've got a friend from out of town and you want to take them up on Mount Tam on a hike because you want to show them the sun going down into the ocean from uh, a certain place up there at the West Point Inn. So yeah, you're so excited and you're going to take them up the mountain and you pick them up from uh, wherever they're staying. You drive up there and you start the hike. You've got a clear goal, very wholesome goal. You've been out in nature, you're appreciating nature, you're being with your friend. It's all very wholesome in its thing. But there you are. In your excitement, your enthusiasm, you take them up Nora, which is a very tough trail to get to West Point in. And it's too much for them. And they get hurt or tired. Or it's, it's just not fun because they're so nervous the whole time. That intention was each step going up the mountain. And in each step, you, this step, you chose the wrong path. You chose the wrong thing because in this moment, you weren't really being considerate. Or there you are, you're going along and you don't pay attention and uh, you get them lost. Because in this moment, because intention is always in this moment as we're moving towards our goal, we don't line up. We don't, we're not bringing what we most care about in this moment. We're too fixated on the goal. And so we, uh, we, don't, we, we don't meet it wisely in this way. And so uh, we, have this, we have this disconnect that in this moment. So each step of our lives, you want, to, um, you want to earn a living. You want to get your project finished. You want to be healthy. Each moment of you moving towards each of those goals and many other goals in, is this step uh, in according with your deepest values or not. And as we learn to live uh, from our deepest values to rest, just as I ask you to rest the body on earth in the meditation, to rest the, uh, the attention aspect of mind in the breath and to see that you could rest attention on the breath. So in our decision-making, in our living the Dharma in daily life, we can rest in intention. We can rest in intention. Maybe we know what to do to move towards our goal in a given moment, and maybe we don't. Maybe it works out and maybe it doesn't. But it is this intention that is the empowerment of the experience itself. Very, very empower, empowering, this sama samkapa. Mindfulness tells us what's true right now. Mindfulness in its mature form has a non-objecting quality to it. Mindfulness, the samasati, the mindfulness of the Buddha is in a particular context. And that is, the Buddha said, I teach suffering in the end of suffering. I only teach suffering in the end of suffering. So the Eightfold Path, the mindfulness of the Buddha is in any moment seeing the suffering and, and ending the suffering, letting loose of that which is causing suffering, not choosing that which is going to cause suffering for ourselves or for others. 
So right now, mindfulness is quite um, popular in our culture, and it can be used for a lot of things. You can, if you're more mindful, you can get your way. You can manipulate others because of your mindfulness, because you're you're more aware of what's going on. You can uh, you can uh, see how to manipulate yourself because you're more mindful. That's not the mindfulness of the Buddha. Someone who breaks into your apartment or your house and steals your computer off the dining room table while you're sleeping in the living room is being very mindful. Very mindful. But that's not the mindfulness of the Buddha. So mindfulness of the Buddha at this one end, suffering and the end of suffering. And so we see that as we're mindful in our lives, this tool of mindfulness, it allows us to be present. And the more and more it matures, the, the less objecting. So as I said earlier, knee pain is like this. We're not objecting to the knee pain. We're just registering it. Now the next moment we do something about it if we can. But there's not this pushing away life, demanding life be otherwise in that moment. We're willing to be with it. Very powerful, this kind of mindfulness. But mindfulness itself doesn't tell us then how to relate. And that's where intention comes in. Intention is where the rubber meets the road. The first part of the Eightfold Path is called wise understanding. But wise understanding, we all know we can understand something, but then not uh, live it out. So there's how many things could you name that you know you should do that would be good for you? How many things do you do that you know is not good for you? You've got the understanding, but you don't have that that movement towards that which is skillful and away from that which is not skillful. That is the intention. Intention is the actual application. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where our, our understanding and our values meet reality. That's the intention. Each step on the path. So there you are walking up the mountain with your friend. And you're, very, you're there on your goal but your friend's not participating the way you would have hoped. And, but you're going right on on your step after step going towards that goal, rather than this moment going, hmm, maybe I should check in with my friend. And what's really true for them right now is that they just got some bad news, and they'd really like to tell you about it. But in, in our movement towards our goal, we miss that moment. We miss that step. We miss that moment. Because we're just focused on the goal. And we're not focused on what really matters to me is I'm being with my friend. I want to attend to my friend. That's the moment. Same at something at work. Yes, I want to accomplish this, but I don't want to compromise certain things to accomplish this. Right speech. They're gossiping about someone. And being popular, if you gossip too, then you're like in the in crowd in that moment because you gossip too. You choose not to. Why? Because your intention is right speech. Right speech. And that's more important to you than winning approval, that kind of surfacy popularity in this moment. Uh, the same with uh, the precept of taking only what's freely given. In this moment, you could take something that's not yours. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to really care. But you don't do it because there's, there, you've got a clear intention to not do that in life to not take credit that's not yours, 
to not take uh, uh, time that's not years or whatever it is. It becomes very powerful. And what we start to feel in this is that, there's, that we're about something other than this pleasant and unpleasant. That we're about something else. And we, what we start to remember is that there was a time in our past when that's how we assumed we were going to live when we were adults. That yeah, we were going to really be true to ourselves. That there was a way we were going to be. That feeling starts to come back in some way. And there starts to be a kind of um, a ground of intention. It's a groundless ground, but nonetheless a ground from which we meet all condition. So we will employ different skillful means towards our goals. So the, the means we apply to our goals change a lot, depending on what's appropriate for the goal. But our intention of meeting this very moment doesn't, doesn't change. So we have the same intentions, no matter the goals. The Buddha teaches that there is only this moment. That who you were when you walked in is long gone. And who you're going to be when you stand up to leave is not here. And there is only the you that's here in this very moment. And it is the intention of you in this very moment that creates uh, karma. Karma is primarily based on our intention, not on what actually happens. Primarily our intention, moment to moment. There is no other time for it to be created other than this moment because we're only here this moment. And it, it accumulates over and over again. And so this is part of this power of intention. The mindfulness tells us what's true now. And we remember, because there's a, a, a sati has this remembering quality to it. We remember what we're about. Oh, we remember our intention. Yes, this is what I'm feeling right now. This is what's true. This is what's going on in my head. And this is, I remember my intention. That's how I relate to it. So to give you an example of this, I have a goal of having you understand these tools. I care much more that you understand these tools than you buy my book. I don't care so much about that. But I do really care that you understand. It motivates me. It gives a purpose to my life. That, that the Dharma, teaching the Dharma gives purpose. And my goal is your understanding. That's my reward is your empowerment. So that's my goal. I'm very clear about my goal. But maybe you're not going to find any of this interesting. Maybe uh, it's not the right time for you to hear this. So maybe the goal's not going to come out. Or maybe I'm deluded, and so I don't even know what I'm talking about. It's all possible, right? So that's the trouble with goals. You know, you get to the top of Mount Tam with your friend, and it's fogged in. Or some fraternity is having a beer keg party up there. Don't know about these goals. However, my intention, as I've here with you now, and we'll continue to be with you uh, during our time here together. My intention is primarily that of kindness. In what I say, in how I respond to your body language, to seeing what changes on your face, is one of kindness. As I reflect in my body language, my face, one of kindness. That is my intention. 
Can you feel that difference? Can you start to distinguish uh, that whole effect? Uh, At Spirit Rock, when um, uh, we've done a lot of work in the last few years and uh, making a healthier community. And so we have goals, you know, of of, of things we're trying to do, but very important, uh, the the moment-to-moment relatedness of human beings in terms of these goals. So for me, intention is so large. The Buddha, and uh, he, he, he gave many different examples of intention, but uh, the three that he talked about most often in the Four Noble Truths is to have in the intention of loving kindness, loving kindness is intention, of non-harming as an intention. Both of those make sense. When I first heard them, I understood that and was inspired by them. But then the third one, he had as an intention, the intention of renunciation. And I, I was, uh, when I first heard that, I was going, what? That, that, that's, those other two are much loftier than renunciation. That's, someone's gotten that mixed up somewhere along the line. So then I reflected on it for a long time. about. So how does that really fit in? And how would you think it fits in? Why would renunciation in our practice of intentionality be just as important as, as loving kindness and non-harming? Why might that be? As you, as you intend to give things that are unskillful. You renounce a bad habit. Yeah, true. Anyone else? I probably we should use the microphone for this. If, um, who was speaking? Is that another way of, of uh, getting at the idea of non-clinging? Non, yes, that is another way of getting at non-clinging. Yes, these are good answers. One more? Take a chance. That over there. Outcome. Outcome. So, say a little more. Uh, having perhaps having will to go forward, but renouncing uh, being ruled by outcome. Yes. So uh, that too, very useful. So the the for me the renunciation is goes back to that, those two strings of pleasant and unpleasant. In our daily lives, we, we have clear values, intentions that we may have developed. But without a, the muscle of renunciation, we will, be, uh, we will be carried away by our lust, by our anger, by our neediness, by our loneliness, by our sense of righteous indignation in such a way that we won't act with loving kindness. We won't uh, 
uh, we will act, we will choose to act in a harmful way because of our anger, our indignation, our uh, our self-justification, or our just our sheer being blinded by lust, or, or wanting, or our loneliness. And so, this uh, renunciation is the ability to uh, to uh, renounce giving in to the pleasant or giving in to the unpleasant. It's very powerful teaching, huh? And so our intention then gives us we are about something, that we know that we are larger than our wants. We know that we're larger than our dislikes. We're larger than our disappointments. And therefore, we being larger can contain that which is smaller. And these, these qualities are being cultivated this way that do that. One of the things that I have observed is, um, through these years of teaching uh, is that, yes, we, are, um, we get uh, uncomfortable with uh, our inadequacies and we are disappointed in ourselves or we, uh, we don't have a lot of confidence in some ways or we have our stories that we carry around of our wounds. And that's all true. But it's also true that we are maybe more afraid of our capacities. We deny our own capacities. I don't mean some improved version of you, but you. I'm suggesting that you deny your own capacities just as you are. Those capacities. Many reasons for this. Some of them have to do with uh, the uh, vulnerability that we would feel if we open to those capacities, because what if nothing manifests from them? What if we're deluded about our capacities? I made a fool out of myself. Or um, the fact that if we really opened to what we know our mind-heart is capable of, we'd have to change our life in some way. And we don't know what would happen then. So who wants that? Who wants that? Ew. All of these different reasons that we, we don't open to our capacities. This is uh, one reason that mindfulness is so hard. is because the more mindful you are, the more you get stuck with what you know. And at some point, what you know becomes so strong that however you've rationalized it to date, you can't rationalize it anymore. You can't distract yourself from it. And the same with intention. As we realize, no, this is what I really care about. This is who I really am. Then we, we, we have to act from it. And it, uh, so that's, those are part of the reasons that there's a whole, uh, if I had a day with you, we'd spend a, some period of time discussing this and exploring it. This is a poem by Kay Ryan called Carrying a Ladder. Carrying a Ladder. You can envision however long a ladder is you like. It can be a little short ladder that you can carry in one hand or a big ladder or however you like it. We are always really carrying a ladder, but it's invisible. We only know something's the matter. Something precious crashes. Easy doors prove impassable. Or in the body, there's too much swing or off-center gravity. And in the mind, a drunken capacity 
access to out-of-reach apples as though one had a way to climb out of the damage and the apology. This capacity is the capacity of our mind-heart that we deny. You know how uh, things haven't quite fit in right? That it it wasn't, somehow it just didn't work out right, even though you got what you wanted? And that that there's this discontent and this this feeling of something a little off, that's the latter, that's the capacity. To not be in this endless cycle of damage and apology for our damage, of causing suffering and regret over the suffering. That there's a ladder out of that that's innate in us as we are now. And I'm not being sentimental about this or uh, naive or... I'm being. I'm a very practical person. I grew up in uh, practical circumstances, being very important to be practical, and uh, uh, so I don't have a Panglossian view of the world that this is the best of all possible realities or any of that. But this capacity is innate in this world, just as it is, and we, with all of our limitations, this capacity, the cultivation of mindfulness and intention. Uh, uh, brings us into touch with this capacity, which has its discomforts and which we will we will struggle with. But what else would we choose to struggle with? We're going to struggle with something. You're going to be wanting something in your life. Have you ever not wanted something in your life? Isn't there always a wanting, even if you only want what you have right now to continue? Isn't the wanting always there? This motivation towards something? So... In the, this motivation towards the eightfold path through mindfulness and intention has, has in it this movement towards the goal of liberation, but it also has in it the, the immediacy of an ease in daily life, an ease in daily life. And so uh, it, it takes our practice from a conceptual thing or our practice is over here and our life is over here and makes it integrated into one. And that, in a way, is the offering. And the feeling of it, uh, one more poem, and I'll take a few questions. This is uh, a poem by Derek Walcott called Love After Love. And this is that false sense I was referring to. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door. Isn't that a beautiful image? The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. And each will smile at the other's welcome. And say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Being awake through intention and through mindfulness has this capacity. In the book, I describe all of these different ways that you can utilize these two things to do everything about your life. And, and they're all very practical, 
But the thing I would most have you know is the value of, of coupling these two together and really cultivating them. Really cultivating them. It's so easy to uh, uh, get caught up in the world's definitions. You know? Been there and done that myself. Not much peace in that. At least that's my experience. And I've, I've worked with lots of people now. Lots, thousands of people. Not much peace in that. The peace is in our own relationship to whatever the conditions are, to whatever our goals are, to whatever is happening to us. That's the peace. The peace isn't found out there. The peace is found within. And these are the tools that, that I, I would have you begin with. And, or you, many of you have a strong practice. So maybe, maybe you've done a lot of mindfulness but not really considered the intention so much. Or maybe you've done both and this is all redundant. Like, you know, why is he bothering with all of this? Of course I know this. That's terrific if that's true. Uh, questions or comments before we end? Please. Yes, of loving kindness, non-harming, and and renunciation. Yeah. Intention is this moment. What what do you intend in this moment? No matter what you're doing, whether you're trying to get the laundry done, or you're uh, being with a friend, what are what are the what are the qualities that you're bringing to that activity? So it can, it can be one of, of kindness, it can be one of truthfulness, it can be one of humor, you can have one of, you know, just, uh, what, is, what is your intention uh, as you're going towards your goal? If you go to my website, uh, the, either the Emotional Chaos to Clarity website or my uh, dharmawisdom.org, I have an inventory of values that you can download or just do online, values that you care about, and then once you've checked the ones, you, there's a whole system for how to do that uh, uh, to indicate which are your most important values. And then from that, you're encouraged to choose two or three intentions that you would do in every moment. So there you are doing the laundry. So, you know, uh, you can be mad at yourself doing the laundry. You can be mad at why you're the one having to do the laundry. Or you could be gentle with yourself. You could be being kind to yourself while you're doing the laundry. Or there you are with your friend and the, the values you bring to play as you're accomplishing whatever you're trying to accomplish with your friend. Maybe just being a friend or maybe your friend's ill and you're taking care of your friend. But there's these values that come into play in everything you say and everything you do. There's a series of values that come into play, either recognized or not. And they're there every single moment. So by values, you mean like attitudes of mind? Attitudes of mind would be part of it, Yes. The attitude. So, like with your friend, um, uh, uh, with your friend, maybe there's this uh, the, the value of being patient, or maybe that's not a value. So you get impatient with your friend. Um, so uh, you, you understand, no, I that it is important to me to be patient. That's part of something I want to be. Or maybe it's not important to you. But you could say, you could have a general idea, of course I want to, my friend, I want to be loving to my friend. But you have no actual intention as to this moment how to be loving to your friend. You just have this goal, oh yes, I want to be loving to the friend, but in the meantime, you're impatient with them, you don't, uh, you don't listen well, you're very judgmental. 
you cultivate intention till it becomes second nature. So you cultivate, that's why you go through all these values and you come to a few intentions and they become, you cultivate one after another till you, till this is how you're meeting. It's just your habit of meeting. You're replacing old unskillful habits or unconscious habits with this, these conscious attitudes, if you like that, attitudes, value attitudes to meet the moment. And the, and the back, please, the lady in the back. Or what if you have good intentions, but then, like, how do you balance balance good intentions with survival, I guess? Like, if you, like, for me, it's like I want to have housing and food, but at the same time, I want my family to not have to always give me money mm-hmm. or pl- pay for my plane ticket, or um, I don't want, I, I don't want to... Um, I've said yes to a living situation, and now I want to say no to it. Uh, and the reason I have, I have the, um, it feels like survival, and that's more important than my intention of um, being true to my word right. and my intention of people having peace of mind. Right. Like I'm really creating a lot of chaos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. It's so, a hard balance between yes, survival. Th- there and is a balance between that. Yeah. So your goals, you have goals, and uh, as as you as you understand the difference between goals and values, you start to see that certain goals that may seem like survival were actually preferences, but they were so overwhelming to the ego that they they just overwhelmed the ego, and then that felt like survival. We all do that. And so that's one whole situation. And then as, as you develop more intentionality, you don't get swept away in those, oh, this is, I've got to have this to survive. And then sometimes there are definite situations where we have to make some kind of compromise to survive. You know, and it, and this is, I don't have time to go through a whole scenario of that. But again, you, it would be, your intention would be one of, of uh, the higher good or the lesser evil in a situation and in that way the lesser destruction in the situation and that would be your intention rather than getting what you want. So it actually holds together as a lived uh, choice in life. I'm watching the time go here and I don't want to keep you so I want to I want us to come to an end with a dedication of the merit. So if you will uh, close your eyes please. So remembering those who are not here tonight that are members of our Sangha, remembering those who are in our lives, who are ill or in need, remembering the conditions of the world and wishing to be part of the holding of the world in whatever way, small, modest, that we can do. We dedicate this merit as we develop our ability to stay mindful, to live from intention. May this be a benefit to our loved ones. May it be a benefit to all of those with whom we come in contact. Any merit that has arisen from our practice this evening, we offer this merit 
together and individually to the benefit of all beings, those we approve of, those we disapprove of. We offer this merit without preference, without discrimination to all beings. May they, through our merit in some small way, move towards the end of their own suffering. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. It's always a pleasure to be here. I have seen many of you on retreats in other places, and I'm sure I'll see more of you and still others in the future. So uh, drive safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.